Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 276 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that I can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Peterson. He runs an innovative cocktail bar and fragrance store in Detroit called Castalia Cocktails and Sfumato, respectively. But for the purposes of this conversation, he's the author of a brand new book called Cocktail Theory, A Sensory Approach to Transcendent Drinks. This is, in my opinion, one of the most exciting and important books to hit the shelves in years. So I'm absolutely stoked to have this conversation. But before we start blowing your mind with never-before-seen data on old fashions, Manhattans, and Negronis, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Everlasting Daiquiri. To make it, you'll need two ounces of rum, Kevin recommends Gosling's Black Seal, one half ounce fresh lime juice, and one half ounce turbinado simple syrup. Prior to construction, you're going to want to chill down your rum and a champagne flute in the freezer. Both need to be ice cold. Then, once the chilling is done, add your liquid ingredients to a cocktail shaker with three large ice cubes. Shake for, according to Kevin, 12 seconds. Then strain into your champagne flute over a smaller ice cube. So if you're using like the typical two inch large cubes in the shaker, plop a smaller one from a standard ice tray or ice maker into the flute before you strain that cocktail. Although it may look bizarre, everything in this recipe is engineered to maintain aeration, temperature, and dilution at optimum levels for as long as possible, meaning that the drink is going to age much more gracefully in the glass, leaving you free to place your attention on socializing, reading, practicing kung fu, or anything else you decide to do between sips. Kevin says this technique is perfect for home because it saves the trouble of batching the lime juice and making sure to drink it before the citrus is turned. Just keep some rum and a flute in your freezer and some limes and simple syrup in your fridge and an everlasting daiquiri is ready whenever you are. So now that you've got another bottle to stick in the freezer and drive your partner or roommates crazy, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this heady, fragrant chat with Dr. Kevin Peterson, author of Cocktail Theory, some of the topics we discuss include why his time spent testing combustion engines in a laboratory made Kevin the perfect person to analyze the classic cocktail families for their ideal dilution, temperature, and ingredient ratios, how bartenders can use the notion of olfactory motifs rooted in memory, nature, and music to design cocktails that thrill at a more three-dimensional level, not just on the taste buds. What tips and tricks Kevin has drawn from the perfumery world to punch up the impact and blast radius of his drinks, including atomized spritzes, scent strips, and even service temperature manipulation. The sense in which bartenders are like magicians, 
constantly manipulating attention and generating novelty, and how you can apply these principles to both cocktail construction and service. And why, at the end of the day, cocktail service and, hey, let's face it, cocktail drinking involves a whole bunch of complex systems that are constantly colliding, leaking information, and changing the way we play the game. Along the way, we provide tips and tricks to make your friends and bar guests say, I can't unsmell that. Probe the koji fermented link between pineapple, aged cheese, and Sharpies. Uncover why Kevin doesn't want to be known as the cricket guy, and much, much more. Cocktail theory, a sensory approach to transcendent drinks, is, in my personal opinion, the most important technical manual on drink construction that will come out this year and maybe for several years to come. When I scrolled through the digital copy that Kevin sent me, my eyes just got wider and wider and wider as I tried to wrap my head around the sheer volume and breadth of information it has to offer. But it's not just a data dump. Each chapter unlocks something new and profoundly actionable. From an empirical explication of ideal cocktail ratios to longer-lasting drink builds to sensory-friendly bar aesthetics and design, anyone listening right now can take something big away from this book. And because at this point I'm gushing, I think it's important to disclose that I have not been paid or incentivized in any way to say that. I just think it looks good for me to say good things about this book. That's how good it is. But hey, you don't have to take my word for it. I hope you enjoy this super fun and nerdy conversation with my friend, Dr. Kevin Peterson. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, dude, I'm so excited for this. It's been, uh, I had to check back. It's been since 2020. We're, this is like episode in the 270s. And I think your first interview is episode 120. So this is over 50% right, right. of the podcast ago. So A, long overdue for us to catch up and B, very excited about your book. But for those of our listeners who are coming to you with fresh eyes and ears and don't know about that first interview that we did, can you just give us a, a quick rundown of who you are and what you do? My name is Dr. Kevin Peterson, just Kevin. I run a cocktail bar in Detroit that is both a perfumery and a cocktail bar. So by day, it operates as a retail space. We sell fragrances that I create. There are benches and tables that fold out of the walls. So at five o'clock, everything flips around. It transforms into a cocktail bar called Castalia. And all of the drinks that are on the menu are paired to the scents. So basically, if the scent has nutmeg and coriander and cardamom in it, we would incorporate those spices into a tincture or a syrup or flavor somehow, make the drink, spray the garnish with the scent, and then serve that as a paired unit so that you get you know both the flavor and the fragrance simultaneously. Right. And I, I mean, A, brilliant to have, you know, two businesses split in rent and, you know, kind of reinforcing what each other do when one is not in operation. But I mean, also, I think it kind of speaks to a lot of what we're going to talk about today, because this is what I think of as sort of like a next level cocktail book. And I, I, I what I want you to do is just, you know, 
because I tend to bury the lead. Let's get the let's get the title. Let's get the the kind of basic pitch of the book out there in general, and then we're going to kind of dive into some of these deeper verticals that you explore in the book. Uh, you call them trajectories. And uh, hopefully this gives our, our listeners a sense of what you've been up to, you know, kind of since last we spoke and, and kind of developing some of those themes that we actually hit on that in that first conversation. Sure. Yeah. And I also tend to jump right to the details. <laughs> but yes, big picture. I wrote a book called Cocktail Theory, A Sensory Approach to Transcendent Drinks. And prior to getting into the cocktail world, I had a couple of careers. So I worked in... Uh, the physics and engineering world. I was a combustion engineer for General Motors and for Bosch, studying automotive engines. I was in the culinary world, and then I started this niche fragrance company, Sfumato, with my wife. And really what the book is all about is what can those other lenses teach us about cocktails? So how do, how do physicists think about cocktails? How would a perfumer think about cocktails? And now in my current role, how would a bar owner think about cocktails? And those are kind of the trajectories of, you know, what, uh, well, most cocktail books are how bartenders, how cocktail people think about cocktails, which makes a lot of sense that they would write those books. But are there other insights that could be had from some of these other points of view? Yeah. And I mean, the wonderful part about points of view and having a book that contains multiple points of view is that like individual fragrances, they can be sort of braided, intertwined, compared to one another, layered. And I see a lot of that going on in the book, which obviously really excites me. The complexity is something that I tend to revel in, although that's not the case for everybody who might be listening. But hopefully as we tug at some of these individual threads, the kind of the thrust of the book will, will become apparent here. And so I wanted to start off by asking you to kind of compare and contrast the similarities and differences, if you will, between the theory, like a physics theory, a big physics theory, like relativity, for example, and the Mr. Potato Head theory of cocktail construction. So I'll just give you that and say, go. Sure, sure. So I think, you know, so in the, well, yeah, when I was in the culinary world, a lot of what I learned was specific recipes. Here's how to make a chicken curry. Here's how to make a cinnamon roll. Here's how to make a whatever kind of dish. And then a lot of your skill was just amassing more and more recipes. And as I got into the cocktail world, I was, you know, that was the path I started down. I got flashcards. I started memorizing, okay, this is what a Manhattan, a Daiquiri, a Collins, you know, all the basics and then getting into weirder stuff. And I'd probably been dabbling for, I don't know, a year or two before I heard about the Mr. Potato Head theory, which the basic idea is if you have a classic drink that's well-balanced, you can swap out one of the ingredients for a different ingredient as long as it's in the same category. So you can swap out one spirit for another spirit, one citrus for another citrus. And this is a thing that most bartenders are probably familiar with, maybe the general public less so. But the beauty of the theory is that it means you don't have to memorize 8,000 cocktails. You can memorize 10 or 15, and then you can Mr. Potato Head your way to a lot of different variations. And so, so that's kind of part of my physics trajectory. In the physics world, we're always looking for some equation, some overarching idea that explains a lot of different phenomena. So like, let's say the theory of gravity 
Um, if we wanted to figure out how fast it takes things to drop, we could measure a bowling ball and a basketball and a hammer and a feather, and we could just amass a list of 8,000 things and how long it takes them to drop five feet or whatever. But with the theory of gravity, we have some equation that explains everything. So you've got one equation, then you just plug in, okay, for the feather, there's a couple little, you know, numbers that we need to dial in related to the feather, the bowling ball, but that theory encompasses every object falling. And the Mr. Potato Head theory essentially encompasses every cocktail out there, or at least a vast majority of them. And it's a different way to learn to think about cocktails with a, with a couple very tangible um, benefits. The first one is with memorization. Instead of having to memorize 8,000 different things, you just memorize a couple and then you kind of swap your way to, to the appropriate solution. If you say, well, a margarita is a classic drink, but I'm more of a gin drinker. Now I can just swap gin into that, into that structure and it'll work. The, the other thing, and the thing that's really important in the book is that a lot of times any drink that can be Mr. Potato headed. So if they're in the same family, meaning you can swap ingredients to get to that same drink. So daiquiri and a gimlet, same, same cocktail family. A lot of times they behave very similarly in terms of where their ideal temperature is, where their ideal dilution is, where their ideal level of bubbles that you shake into the drink. So that means not only does it simplify my memorization, but when I'm trying to study and quantify these drinks, instead of having to study 8,000 drinks, I just study 10 and I say, okay, the results for one member of the family more or less apply to all the members of the family. Yeah. And, and I, one of the things that you bring up in the book that I, that I appreciate is like, well, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of taken for grantedness with both the theory of relativity and the Mr. Potato head method of cocktail construction. Right. And on the one hand, that's really useful because if we had to calculate every, you know, if, if we had to, if we had to run calculations for every little thing that we did in the physical space of the world, things, this, this wouldn't work. We need some, we need some basic assumptions in our lives. And in that respect, the Mr. Potato Head theory of cocktail construction is useful in that it provides us with said assumptions. But then what you do is you go ahead and you, test those assumptions and quantify them. And so I'm wondering if you might share some of the experimental methods and visualization schemes that are associated with the way you then went about testing these cocktail families. And I think for me, the most compelling was you know, sort of like the daiquiri or the Manhattan relative to some of these other cocktail families. And, you know, just kind of walking us through the way that you said, okay, this is a great assumption. Now I'm going to actually run this test. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, th this theory is often cited, but again, most people in the bartending space are primarily bartenders. Whereas my early training was as a physicist, as an engineer, running experiments. So I spent about a decade collecting engine data. And, um, you know, with my fellow engineers, we would often present at sort of more intense technical level. But then when we would talk to managers, we would kind of, you know, simplify it a bit and just kind of take the core essence. And I thought, okay, for the book, 
this is really more of a manager level overview of the data. But, you know, what is a daiquiri? So it's rum, lime, and sugar, I think, but in what ratios and what kind of rum and what kind of lime. So I actually just taught a class last week where I took four different cocktail books off the shelf and said, here's one for you, make this daiquiri. Here's one for you, make this daiquiri. All well-respected authors, all different recipes, different ratios, different rums, different, you know, and it's like, well, okay. (laughs) So, so yeah, you assume when you say a certain thing that everybody knows what a daiquiri is and everybody thinks they do, but they might have their own definition. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to drink all the daiquiris and see which ones are good and see which ones aren't. So one of the things I did was to say, okay, I'm going to pick two ounces of some rum and then I'm just going to sweep the amount of lime juice and the amount of simple syrup in there. So I'm going to do a quarter ounce and a quarter ounce, lime and simple, quarter ounce and a half ounce, quarter ounce and three quarters ounce. And so I wound up with these graphs where there might be 30, 40 different daiquiris on there. And just to keep the analysis fairly simple, I just used a three-point rating system. Green happy face, I love this drink, can't wait to take the next sip. Red frowny face, something's nasty, I'd rather not finish it. Yellow smiley face is somewhere in between, not offensive, but not great either. And as I plotted all of these daiquiris, I found that there were certain regions where it's like, okay, there's not just one point. There's not just one daiquiri. It's a range. It's maybe three or five or eight, you know, depending on which drink and which, you know, a couple other criteria. But yeah, there, there's kind of a range where I can say, yeah, this is the reasonable daiquiri zone. Well, now what if I use a different rum? What if I use a different lime? What if I use white sugar versus turbinado sugar versus brown sugar and the ideal range shifts a little bit but they overlap enough that you're like okay this is really what the mr potato head theory is saying is that the ideal range as long as i'm staying within you know that mr potato head guideline the ideal range overlaps enough that we can say yeah brown sugar white sugar turbinado sugar they're all roughly the same sweetness. So they all line up in that same ideal zone. And, you know, I got to say, I also enjoyed uh, sipping 300 different versions of the daiquiri (laughs) to do these tests. So more enjoyable than going to the engine lab and running 300 different uh, fuel injector variations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can see how that would be the case. Well, one of the notions in science, it's probably one of, I would say like the, the, the key concepts in experimental anything, physics or psychology or biology, medicine is replicability, right? And so what I love about what you've done is you've sort of replicated the, fi- not even the findings, you've, you, you've actually, you, you've generated a, a first study, right? But what your study is doing is sort of validating these, uh, what we might call like cultural or qualitative assumptions that we have amassed over the years into an informal theory. So it would be like, like when we, like when we finally, like for certain, we're like, yep, earth and moon are going around the sun. Like, yeah, like some guy with a weak ass telescope kind of gave us that notion a while ago, but it's, you know, it's, it's useful to go in with some updated methods and actually go 
and bring some data back to actually say like, nope, yep, this is, this is indeed why this theory works. Now, one of the other things that I'm interested in relative to the Mr. Potato Head and some of the tests that you ran was that it seemed like some cocktail formats were really tight. Like the daiquiri seemed to like really inhabit this, this optimal zone. And no matter what you did to abuse that daiquiri in terms of changing it, right? Like dark rum, changing the sugars, et cetera, it kind of stayed around that central home. But it seems like there's other drinks that maybe acted a little bit differently. They were either hyper narrow or, or much wider and more sprawling. So can you can you maybe just give us a, a, a slight sense of, of which cocktails or families might fall in, in, in those different categories and why maybe you think that is? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think uh, one of the most profound examples and, and something that caught me off guard when I did the test was the old fashioned is a very narrow range of the ratio of simple syrup to bitters. So, so in this kind of space where I was drafting things, the daiquiri was kind of a medium sized. Okay. Get within this range and you're okay. The old fashioned was like, Oh man, you got to like be a sniper with, with this. But then the Negroni was the hugest one of all, where it was like, just get some amount of gin and Campari <laughs> and uh, vermouth in there. And yeah, you can pretty much call it a Negroni and, people will be all right with it because I tended to think of both the old fashioned and the Negroni in a similar vein of, okay, there are these spirit forward cocktails. They're fairly robust. Let's get them close and it's going to be good. And yeah, once I sort of sat down and really critically sipped, it was like, Oh no, that is not, uh, that is not the case at all. And I think, you know, so, so the Negroni is a very complex drink. And, you know, Campari has many botanicals and it's it's, uh, bitter and sweet. Gin has a bunch of botanicals. Vermouth has a bunch of botanicals and it's got grapes and they're sour and savoriness and all this stuff going on. And, And actually, this harkens back to something that my one of my teachers in culinary school told me was that if you really want to assess a chef, you don't look at the beef Wellington or some 27 ingredient curry. Once you get enough stuff in there, a lot of times these things are pretty decent. You really want to strip down, you know, how do they butter a piece of toast? <laughs> yeah. It's cook, like, cook an egg, roast or, a chicken, right? Yeah. Just, just very kind of, there's no room to hide in some of those dishes. There's no room to hide in an old fashioned. There's a lot of room to hide in a Negroni and, and that was something that surprised me. And yeah, something I mentioned in the book is, okay, what, what I've started to do now is when I go out to bars and I'm like, uh, I don't know if I really want to take a risk on getting a precisely executed drink in this venue. I'm going to order a Negroni. Whereas when I'm interviewing bartenders, when I'm, you know, more sort of critically analyzing someone's bartending ability, I ask them to make an old fashioned and yeah, you know, that's come out now in my like business practices too. So Mm. that was a cool finding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, to be honest, there's, there's so much going on in, in 
this book that we're just not going to be able to hit on every section. So like what I, where, where, where I want to go right now is I want to talk about everlasting coxes. I want to talk about the big three. I want to talk about what is it? Aeration and dilution and, you know, temperature, right? Something like that. Uh, and talk about your, your approach to everlasting cocktails, but we got other stuff to do right now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to leave that as a way to, you know, kind of incentivize folks to say, Hey, there's a lot more on the technical sort of engineering side in this book that we can talk to. And if we uh, talk about, and if we have time, maybe we can circle back to it, but you know, uh, I want to talk uh, about aroma because that was, I think one of the first things that you and I bonded on, you know, we both uh, we both realized that we had nerded out on on Gordon Shepard's book Neurogastronomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, being being that you run a perfume shop, I, I wanted to see if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more on aroma. And um, you know, one concept that you discuss is called you know olfactory motifs. And maybe this is an echo of some of these trajectories that, that you're talking about. You know, so you, you prepare these sort of olfactory motifs, but what is an olfactory motif and, and how do you think about using these or deploying them in a cocktail setting? Okay, yeah. So the, the olfactory motif, I think it, it really comes out of the idea that scent is this sort of nebulous and often nonverbal experience. You smell a smell and you you can tell if it's fresh bread or if it's, you know, a diesel truck going by or you know, there, there's many scents you can identify, but often when you have to describe a scent, and this, this is an exercise I teach some scent making classes, you know, and I'll tell people, okay, now go ahead and describe this. And, you know, nine out of 10 people, they're experiencing it vividly, but it's not really translating into words in any meaningful way. And I think the idea of a motif is important because it gives you some conceptual sort of thing to latch onto and and something that i've started to experience more so here in detroit the cocktail scene 10 years ago was very new very nascent it's really come a long ways i'm going out a lot and i'm getting drinks with 8 10 12 ingredients in them that are complex that are interesting but i take you know and I, and I enjoy the drink but then when i'm done i'm like well i don't quite even know what i just experienced there were some lacto blueberries in there. There was some weird gin I've never heard of. There was this and that. And, but, but all the flavors kind of melded to a point where I couldn't pick out any individual element. And now when I try to think back on that drink, it's just this, again, kind of nebulous, wordless thing, which I maybe enjoyed in the moment, but the olfactory motif, I think one helps a person to think about and remember it. And two helps during the creation process to say, okay, we could just throw a bunch of stuff in here and see if it works. And often it's at least pretty good. But if you have some guiding force to say, okay, well, should I put cardamom in here or not? Does that fit the motif? So a couple of the different motifs that I talk about in the book, you know, one very powerful one is an olfactory memory. So the scent of your grandmother's kitchen when you used to go visit her or the scent of your college dorm room, which is maybe better forgotten or, (laughs) you know, some meal you had at some point or, you know, just uh, sitting around a campfire and drinking a certain beverage. 
And then, you know, now that you've got that picture painted, that gives you a clear idea to say, well, is this component part of the picture? Does this fit with the theme? Is this in here or not? Sometimes that motif might be simpler and it might just be some unique bottle that I just got in and I just want to highlight, you know. So I, I lived in China briefly about a decade ago and drank some Baijiu, which wasn't available here in Michigan until the last year or two. And when it became available, I was like, oh, wow, other Midwesterners need to try this. I'm not trying to hide this under 12 different layers of weird stuff. I just want people to experience this but not just as a neat shot. I want it to still be a cocktail, but everything in the drink is going to be in service of putting that element on a pedestal. Mm. Yeah. So we've got like an olfactory memory. We've got like a, what you might call like a hero ingredient or a, a, a hero profile. What are one or two others just so people can kind of like wrap their heads around this notion, because I think it's important. And I think like, you know, to me, a lot of what you're saying, you know, giving giving people something to quote unquote to latch on to, something that takes the experience from, as you said, nebulous to something that is very in focus, I guess, right? To me, it seems like almost like a, a, a focus thing and, and memory is to me a, a lot about focus. So what are, what are some other like one or two more motifs that, that you run through in the book? Yeah. So one, uh, another one that, that I really like, and that's very common in the food and beverage world, uh, would be called a locking motif, which, which goes by a couple names, but just kind of like a combo of ingredients that just work really well together. So let's say pumpkin spice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all right, you got to admit it's pretty good. It has a certain, you know, uh, status among maybe more serious connoisseurs of flavor, but like, it's great in pumpkin pie. It's great in a latte. It's great in a lot of places. And it's not one ingredient. It's, you know, I'm sure everybody's got their own blend, but it's some nutmeg and clove and allspice and cinnamon mm -hmm. and a bunch of these baking spices. Garam masala is not so far removed from, you know, from that profile. And yet it's, it's often a combination where any one of the ingredients might be a little bit lacking on its own. So let's say if you were thinking of these ingredients in an image, well, this one fills in this part and this ingredient fills in this part and this ingredient fills in this part and you put them all together and now you've got a full picture. Whereas if you had just put nutmeg in there, it would have been like, okay, well I got this part, but what's going on with the rest of the picture and that locking motif or, you know, just kind of that idealized combination really fleshes out a full sensory impression, a full picture for you. Right. And this is an approach that, again, like a lot of bartenders do employ this, right? Like we've got the flavor Bible that a lot of folks go to. I've got like uh, I've got some half-assed version of it that I, that I go to all the time for, for, for cooking related stuff. But this is something I've been, I've been struggling with recently as I try to think about like tasting notes and how to describe certain spirits and cocktails and, you know, the flavor wheel as a tool is, is really useful in allowing people to get past that, the, uh, the stuttering moment that you were referencing earlier <laughs> when you were asking people to describe something, to put it into words and getting from there to a place where they can name a food word 
which is something like, you know, white peach, for example, very specific type of fruit, then stone fruit, then orchard fruit, then peach, then white peach, right? You know, we're going down, down and down in, in, in terms of granularity until we finally arrive at this one really specific thing. But even then, I think, I think something is lost when we're like, great white peach. Now what? Uh, so what are, what are some of those other aspects of aroma that, that, that play into that, I guess the fullness, the richness, the technicolor nature of a great cocktail experience, specifically as it, as it applies to flavor and aroma, as opposed to things like taste or balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in the bartending world, a lot of a lot of bars, a lot of bartenders have really dialed in the ability to create balanced drinks. But on the aroma side, I think there's less discussion, maybe less knowledge of what that would even mean. So like in the musical world, you can say, well, you need some bass and some mids and some trebles. And it's not that a song that only has a flute or only has an acoustic guitar is necessarily bad but it's not really a full spectrum song so a lot of times when you're trying to create a really full sound you're going to add things at different frequency levels to sort of flesh out that whole experience and in the scent world you can do a very similar thing and there's even some shared language where we would say there's top notes there's middle notes there's bass notes top notes evaporate very quick they're light middle notes or well let's say bass notes are the heavier deeper often darker notes they tend to last longer in a perfume sense they would last longer on the skin in a flavor sense maybe that's what lingers more after you take a sip you know and then the mids are somewhere in between and i often see that the tastes of a drink are balanced so the right ratio of bitter to sweet or sour to sweet but then the aroma might not really have that same uh, degree of intention or attention and so it's not that it's wrong but it's just like well with a couple little things we could really just flesh out this experience much more you know so so part of it is there's just kind of this technical element of like well let's just fill the space that we're given so you've got many different olfactory receptors and by hitting some tops, some middle, some bass notes, you're more likely to be exciting a wide range of them and just creating a more full impression. And then in the in the time domain, you want some some things to be perceived very immediately, some things to be perceived a little bit later, some things to linger a long time. So you're just kind of fleshing out this this space to a full experience. And that's often something that I find is is a little lacking when I just go out on the town. Yeah. And I like that notion of fleshing out too, because it, it implies a three dimensionality. And I think this is, again, this is another thing that I think your book does better than any other text I've come across, which is it doesn't sacrifice the fidelity of one dimension for the fidelity of another dimension, right? So we've got the balance, right? You've got all these experiments that you're running about the optimal range of these ingredient ratios for the daiquiri. And then on the other hand, you're saying it's like, yeah, but that's only a 2d picture chunk. We're going to, we're going to slide over. And now we're going to look at the aroma dimension. And I think that's the tricky thing is that when you say something's nebulous, it's like, Ooh, it's kind of cloudy and murky in here. 
how does adding more stuff to a nebula, right? Like literally a cloud make it clearer. And it's like, Ooh, but if you do it the right way, you know, suddenly we're, it's, it's not this diffuse and kind of murky cloud. It's like, Ooh, things start to crisp up a little bit. And so I think, I think that's almost the paradox of this book is that there's so much information that you're like, how does this not all just turn into like a brown soup of flavor and aroma if I try to apply all these principles? But in fact, if you take it stepwise, and I think you set it up in a really smart way, these different dimensions kind of click in and you start to be able to turn a cocktail over and manipulate it in front of you in mental space in a way that I think is really uncommon. And I think like to me with a split audience between professional bartenders and distillers and complete, just utterly home enthusiasts, I think it's great that you have a tool here that'll allow home enthusiasts to use these tools and approaches in just the same way that, you know, somebody who's working at a, you know, Michelin star, establishment can can put them on a menu and charge $25 a pop. <laughs> yeah, I tried to rely minimally on weird equipment. There's some specific techniques, but a lot of it is tinctures and syrups and just buying spirits that somebody else made. So, yeah, I mean, I love reading the, the nerdy, like, liquid nitrogen and centrifuge books, but... <laughs> That's not probably what most people are going to stock their home bar with. Sure. Well, speaking of that, let's um, let's talk about some some specific hacks that you use. Uh, I've got a question from the the Discord. A couple here from Jaden. Shout out to Jaden. Uh, what's your favorite thing to spray or atomize over a drink? You know, typical examples that he thinks of are you know like uh, like an Isla, uh, Isla or a Highland you know smoky peaty briny Scotch or a mezcal or even an absinthe. But what are some other things that you've sprayed over. I mean, I know that you use perfumes frequently at Sfumato and Castalia, um, but are there any other ingredients or uh, individual kind of like single stream essential oils perhaps that, that, that are like go-tos in your toolkit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a little spoiled because yeah, I also own a perfume company. So I have a few hundred essential oils to choose from and just can drop them into some alcohol and atomize them i've done an interesting kind of set of experiments looking at different botanicals within amari where i would spray i, I would pick one component so let's say saint george bruto uh which is you know kind of a red bitter uh, amaro it is made with fir balsam so kind of that christmas tree scent which you know I drank it many times and never noticed that note. And then all of a sudden I, I was on their website and I read about that note and then I went back to smell it and I was like, Oh, I think it's there. And then I had the fur balsam essential oil and I smelled it, went back to the Bruto again and was like, okay, now it's nine days. Now I can't unsmell it. And now this was maybe two, three years ago. Yeah. Now I can't unsmell it. So I've done this experiment at the bar and actually as part of my tails talk last year, I would put uh, a scent strip dipped in fur essential oil, have people smell that to basically prime them to that smell. 
and then either drink Brucho or drink a Negroni or a Boulevardier made with Brucho. You know, and once you've been primed with that, it's very easy to pick out. Whereas if if I hadn't said anything about it, if I just served somebody the Negroni or the Boulevardier, it's unlikely. And for myself, I had drank many drinks with that in there and never noticed that. So I have fun using that aromatic note as kind of a priming thing. So finding some botanical in the gin, some botanical in the Amaro, and just saying, okay, you probably wouldn't have noticed this, but now I'm just basically pointing it out to you, but I'm pointing it out to you olfactorily. That's probably not a word, but I'm making you smell it, and now you're going to notice it in the drink. So, So a lot of times I like to serve drinks where there's kind of an aha moment or kind of in that motif realm, it's like something you can go home and talk about rather than just saying, yeah, I drank that drink. It was good. You say, okay, yeah, I had this weird experience. I experienced a sensory thing that I've never done before. Those to me are some of my favorite bar experiences to create for guests. Right. This episode is brought to you by Direct Fire Consulting. This is my brand new venture for 2024, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to introduce you to this new project and the kinds of people I'll be partnering with as I build out the portfolio. Longtime listeners know I've been a professional spirits judge for over five years, working with the American Distilling Institute and other organizations to assess the quality of distilled spirits, both domestic and imported. I've also spent more than seven years partnering with distillers, here in the Mid-Atlantic on everything from product development to staff training to special events. So if you're a distiller who's looking for a helping hand with anything short of running your stills, I can't do that for you. Or if you're interested in exploring what it takes to bring a completely new spirits brand to market, Direct Fire Consulting is here to help. Visit directfireconsulting.com or reach out to me personally to learn about all the distilled spirits consulting services I offer from sensory analysis, to branding and packaging, to contract distilling placement, and much, much more. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and we'll, actually, that's the next thing I kind of want to get to uh, is sort of like the the guest, like building that guest experience, because that's another one of the trajectories in your book is the bar owner. But finishing up, um, another thing that Jaden was curious about here was, um, you know, temperature relative to aroma, obviously, you know, conventional wisdom is that, you know, chilled cocktails sort of can kind of mute the aromatics in, in some cases, are there any uh, like room temperature serves or scoffas or anything like that, that, or maybe even warm cocktails for all I know that, that, um, you've played around with uh specifically with a focus on on the aroma yeah yeah i mean it's it's a good point that in general evaporation is temperature dependent so you make a hot soup steam's pouring off aromas pouring off but then with most cocktails instead of going whatever 50 or so degrees above room temp fahrenheit we're going 50 degrees whatever 40 degrees below and it's like Oops, where'd our aroma go? Which is part of the reason, you know, a bunch of mint or an expressed orange peel or a scent strip is such a powerful addition. Yeah, with the the scoffas, you know, I I had initially approached that with this everlasting idea. So the everlasting idea is a lot of times once a drink is served, there's a very narrow window, five-ish minutes, where it's still in its ideal 
temperature, dilution, aeration zone, but I don't finish drinks within five minutes, usually, maybe in college here and there, but like, it's been a minute. Um, so how do you make a drink last longer? Well, the Scafa just has that everlasting quality built into it, which is just a room temp cocktail. It doesn't change temperature. It doesn't change dilution. Typically, it's unaerated, so it does, it's not changing aeration level either. And and I did find that there was a lot more aroma. So, yeah, I had to scale back some of the aromatic ingredients. A lot of times, my tinctures are calibrated, so one eyedropper full is the amount that you want in a cocktail. Just so as I'm freestyling something, I can just grab any bottle and say, yeah, it's going to be one squeeze. I don't have to remember three drops of this one, but six drops of that one, but this one's only four. It's just one squeeze, one squeeze, one squeeze. But I found it was more like half a squeeze or a third of a squeeze because, yeah, that extra 30, 40 degrees of temperature is enough to really promote a lot more evaporation. Now, my one technical question on Ascafa, because it's also something that is brought up in Souther Teague's book, I'm Just Here for the Drinks. When it comes to dilution, are you relying on higher dilution inputs? So, i.e. more, maybe two vermouths and more vermouth than a base spirit? Or are you also pre-diluting with like room temperature filtered water in Ascafa? generally speaking. Sure. I would say Souther Teague has probably taken this idea further than me. <laughs> when, when I was messing with them, I was just adding the water. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I started out adding no water and was like, oh, not the right balance. You know, now I've also done hundreds of these dilution experiments. And I'm like, okay, now my palate is much more dialed in to say it's lacking dilution or it's five degrees, too warm or too cold. And so as I was messing with these recipes, I was like, nope, not enough dilution. So I would just dump a quarter ounce of water into essentially an old fashioned build and found that that got me to, to roughly where I wanted to be. As, as I was perusing some recipes online, I found that a lot of recipes did not call for any dilution. And even when I recreated some things that I found online, which I don't even quite remember the, the source for these now, I remember thinking, uh, I think this is better with a little bit of water in it. So I don't know if it was just something palettes were different back in the day when some of these drinks were being created, or if people just weren't paying as much attention to dilution as me, or, you know, not, not quite sure where the, where the difference lies, but yeah. I think you just hit on it. Exactly. I think it's, I think we're too spoiled now because when I think of when would I want to scoff it's like, well, I guess when I'm not hot, right? Because when I'm hot, I want something cold. So when would I want something room temperature? Well, maybe when I'm cold, I guess, which would be now. And yet it's a perfect 68, 70 degrees in this room and it's freezing outside for both of us. So I think we're too spoiled and, you know, ice, man, just having ice. So we need to like, I think the the ideal place for the scoffa to be perfected is like 50 to 100 years ago in like a Mediterranean country or a very like temperate climate, no air conditioning, but also not much, you know, rustic heating, for example. Um, but let's, I guess, let's turn our attention now because at this point I'm, I'm cutting heavily into our lightning round potential. Let's turn our attention okay. to the, to the service aspect. And, you know, one, one point that you made in the book that I found fairly compelling was the comparison of, bartenders 
and magicians. And so can you talk about the process of harnessing attention for the express purpose of generating novelty? And, and what does novelty even have to do with a transcendent cocktail experience? So, so one of the one of the tracks I take in the book is that the level of complexity of the drink should somehow be related to how much attention that drink is going to get. So, if you're at a wedding, or you're out on a boat, or you're you know at some activity where the drink is not the focus, you don't need a 17 ingredient, you know, ultra complex drink because you just don't have the attention to appreciate those different levels. You need you know, lawnmower beer or whatever, strawberry vodka, something, something simple and easy because that's not the focus, but in a craft cocktail bar, like the one I run and like the ones I like to visit, the cocktail is the focus. And, you know, I want to go, go deeper with that, but how do you capture the attention, um, you know, to draw someone into that drink and, and have them focus on that and the you know two of the big methods i mentioned in the book are the novelty and the complexity and i think you know i'm not an evolutionary biologist but i'll maybe make a little call out to that whenever we're tasting things or smelling things there's some element of this is about to be entering my body is this safe is this going to kill me is this spoiled is this good is this bad and when it's something very familiar i've eaten peanut butter toast 8,000 times. I don't need to devote much attention because I know exactly where that peanut butter toast is supposed to be. When I'm eating, or let's say the first time I had sushi, I was like, <laughs> I was completely drawn into the moment because I was like, I don't know if this is what it's supposed to taste like. It's intriguing. I was looking at everybody else at the table to judge their reactions. I was looking at the kitchen. You know, I was like, completely wrapped up in this moment because it was out of my comfort zone. It was completely novel to me. And, you know, that, that same effect can happen in the drinks where, okay, I've drank bourbon so many times. I've drank old fashions. I've drank, you know, certain drinks just over and over each time I'm devoting slightly less attention to it. But, so let's just go back to the Baijiu example. The first time I had that, it's like, I don't know what's going on here. Is this what it's supposed to taste like? Yeah. Is that pineapple? Is that Sharpies? Is that aged cheese? What the heck is going on in my nose and my mouth? And, and when you're trying to create that fully immersive experience, that's the level of attention that you want to draw out of someone. So, you know, much like with the magician, a lot of the, the tricks rely on here. I'll do some sleight of hand. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, keep an eye on this. It only works if you, Oh, it's over here. Um, you know, you have to control the audience's attention in the right way. If you're levitating a person, they have to be focused on, well, what's causing the levitation. You know, you have to control the attention in a certain way for the magical effect to take place in the same way that a bartender has to control the guest's attention in order for that magical moment to take place with the drink. Right. This episode's brought to you by the flavor blaster. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I love that. I love the, the Baijiu and the peanut butter toast example. 
Um, that's it's just so funny. Uh, I'm, I'm personally, I'm glad that peanut butter toast is your safe space. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that what you just elaborated on is kind of it kind of hits on something that I was just talking about with my friend Chava over on the uh, Heritage Mezcal podcast about, yeah, and it, it really, I think it has to do with safety. It also ties in with memory, right? Primacy and recency are two of the biggest factors in your ability to remember something. So if you've never had something before, recency is out the window. That's a non sequitur. Right. So we, all we've got is primacy. And then, yeah, that's why, like for me, my example is always the first time I tasted green chartreuse was like seeing a different color, right? You're like, Whoa, didn't know that was possible. Baijo also a fantastic call out. So as we get toward the end of the conversation, I'm, I'm curious if we might kind of indulge even further you know, in, instead of saying, no, maybe, maybe we've done enough. Let's, let's be, you know, let's be reasonable here. Let's, let's indulge even further in this, I, I, I guess, maybe higher order thinking about drinks, which are after all just, you know, Hey, let's invoke Southern Teague again, cold soup, right? Uh, let's, let's move away from cold soup and more into the notion that to me, as I read through your book in preparation for this conversation, it seemed to be very specifically about reality and either finding that theory of everything on one hand where you can say like, nope, like this is the reality of the daiquiri and I plotted it on a graph for you or Conversely, on the other hand, in some of these other trajectories that you're talking about, actually manipulating reality so that you're, you know, the bartender is taking somebody's expectations or the literal sensory images that they're forming in their brain, literal electricity in someone's skull and messing with it a little bit. So, sure. so, so for you, I, I guess my question that I gave you is what gives, it seems like in some cases you're like, no, reality must be plotted on a graph. And in other cases you're like, well, it's actually highly, you know, kind of like Play-Doh kind of silly putty moldable and, and kind of flexible. So where, where do you stand on the reality or I guess fiction of, of cocktails? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if I could plot every level and graph it out, I would, maybe reality would lose some charm without the sort of magic there. But, um, yeah, I, I think part of this is a realization that I had as I was getting into bar ownership. So I started out as a home bartender. I was working as an engineer and I just, a lot of times it was me and the drink and doing experiments and, graphing and putting spreadsheets together and so much of what I thought about the cocktail world in the first book I or well, let's say the most profound cocktail book that I read in my early days was liquid intelligence which is a very nearly approach to cocktails and and I just as I was building on my bar Castalia I was thinking about how do we get the drink right and the glassware and just everything was like the cup and as I worked with uh people that i hired 
a lot of their focus was the guest and the interaction and the relationship and the environment and the space and things that I was like, well, yeah, like we need to have music and yeah, we need to like talk to the guests, I suppose, but like <laughs> the drink, the drink, the drink, the drink. And you know, the more I worked in that space, it was like, well, you know, and, and sometimes uh, say a bartender of mine would freestyle something and I'm like, I kind of think this is mediocre at best, but this is maybe somebody that they already knew or an old regular from another bar that that's now coming in. So I'm not going to get in the way of this interaction that's happening. And the guests just loved it. And, you know, and it, and it kept happening to where, okay, what, what is the percentage of the literal things in the glass that are making that experience versus the person serving it to you, the, you know, the ambiance, things not in the glass and especially that human element. And, you know, for me coming from a more analytical background and just a more analytical mindset, I, it it was enlightening for me to watch people who just, could feel their way through and not to say there wasn't a lot of practice or a lot of thought behind it, but people who, to my eye, just like gracefully worked their way through these situations. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. That was beautiful. And I know you haven't done temperature and dilution experiments. And I know you haven't read 15 different books about how olfactory processing happens, but I got to say like you are creating a better guest experience than me in this moment so so that was like profound realization that yeah it's not just the graphs it's not just the the numbers it's it's creating that space and that interaction and that relationship yeah i something that i got a little deeper into since you and i last spoke is complexity science are you familiar with the santa fe institute at all Yep. So they had a podcast. It's unfortunately on hold right now, but it's uh, an incredible podcast just called Complexity. And one of the interesting ways that I've recently heard of a complex system described is that like, well, if it's a system, it's got discrete boundaries, right? Otherwise it would just be everything, right? And one of the, one of the examples, you know, that that's often used is like the cell or our bodies, right? And, you know, I would think a human is a complex system. And, you know, when you bump into another person by accident, it's not like you go through them. It's like you bounce off each other. You've got, you've got something in between. And that thing is often referred to as, you know, in a cell, it's very, very specifically a membrane. And the thing about membranes and and what I'm trying to do is just maybe just dish this over to you so that you can chew on it for a little, for a little bit. And maybe it's, maybe it's a potential resolution to this, you know, kind of, um, peevish paradoxical question that I pose to you is that, well, the other thing about membranes is that they're porous and a complex system wouldn't be nearly as complex if things weren't able to penetrate it from the outside and leave it from the inside and kind of blend and remix with other elements in the environment. And so I guess to me, I do see a whole ton of value of both the internal validity of a mathematical plotting on a graph as applied to 
something that eventually needs to be externally valid, which is something that, you know, you have to actually get somebody to pay you money for in a bar and then leave smiling and tell their friends and come back with them, which is, you know, something you talk about quite a bit in your introduction to the book. So I don't know. I just wanted to pose the notion of the membrane to you there as kind of like the border of the complex system that allows for both of these things to kind of coexist and, you know, kind of, uh, have correspondence between one another. One of the realizations I've had in running my bar is, okay, it's it's great for me to hire people that are very gifted in the realm of interacting with other people, but let's also nail all of the technical parts of the drink too. Like we, it's not one or the other, we can totally do both. So yeah, it, it gets complex. You know, business ownership is HR and marketing and actually tomorrow's my day to meet with my bookkeeper and spend six hours going over QuickBooks and and it's sugar levels and it's what temperature are we making our simple syrup at and it's should this drink be $14 or $16 or $12 and it's very hard to give every element the attention that it maybe optimally deserves but uh Yes, it is a complex system, and sometimes you just got to be like, well, let's just keep moving forward and <laughs> trust the process a little bit. Yeah. Well, and that's also why bartenders drink like garbage cans, right? Like it's the stuff they put into their bodies when they're not on shift is just, you know, it's it's Miller High Life's and Fernet shots. And I think that that explains it perfectly well. Um, so, Kevin, before we jump into the lightning round here, uh, where would you request that people go to pre-order a copy of your book? Yeah, it is available on my website, com. I will soon have a link on, uh, or that's the website for my scent company. It will soon be available on my bar website as well, castaliacocktails.com. And it will be sold through both places as well as in the bar. People can also shoot me an email at kevin at sfumatofragrances.com, which is kevin at s-f-u-m-a-t-o fragrances.com. I'm also of the age where I was cool at the same time Facebook was cool. So if anyone wants to connect with me on social media, Facebook is where I spend most of my time. Cool. Uh, well, we will make sure that we've got links in the show notes and, um, you know, we definitely want to send people, this is, this is not a publisher situation. Oftentimes I, I, um, interview people with publishers because publishers have PR, PR, the people who email me, uh, I just happen to be a big fan of yours and re reached out independently in this case. So definitely on my end, this is, this is a, I've, I've read the book. It is really good please support Kevin and pick up a copy. If what we, we talked about seems interesting to you. Um, there's so much more than we were able to delve into here today. Uh, and with that, I think we should dive into the lightning round. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Desert Island scenario. You're going to be stranded on a desert Island with no prospect of rescue. So you're gonna have to spend a, a significant amount of time. Uh, what's one cocktail that you would like to have with you sort of like bottled or on draft and uh, what's one bottle like of straight spirits that you would bring? You can interpret the rules of this however you want. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I think my cocktail would have to be an old fashioned. 
think I might get lonely on a desert island. And that's one drink that I've been drinking. That's the first drink that kind of got me into this world. <clears throat> Just so many memories and so many kind of situations tied to that. That's my little like, uh, you know, entry point into just many, many pleasant memories. Man, I struggled with the bottle, uh, with the, the thought of a single bottle. Cause like my whole thing is having a million bottles. I got a million bottles of scent. I got a million bottles of spirit, man. If it had to be just one, uh, wait, it give, might give be, me, give me the category and let's see if I can guess. Unless it's super obscure. Uh, I'll do mezcal. I'll do mezcal. Oh, I'm not going to be able to guess mezcal then. Um, I, there, there was a bottle that was briefly available in Michigan. I haven't seen it in a minute. A Machetazo Salmiana. It was just so complex and so weird and kind of defied my expectations and, you know, thoughts of what mezcal would be that, yeah, I could just sip it and ponder it indefinitely. I feel like you've got like Chava hiding in the closet with you because he is also a big fan of Salmiana. You should check out his oh, uh, really? Heritage, okay. Heritage Mezcal. He's got a whole episode on Salmiana. So um, fantastic. Uh, what um, what are like one or two ingredients or recipes or techniques that you hope people will take away from cocktail theory, your book, and, you know, kind of, um, incorporate into their own cocktail toolkits. Cause you do have plenty of recipes and, and specific kind of like, um, you know, ingredients that, that you kind of really lay out in detail. Yeah. I think, I think on the technique side, this notion of everlasting drinks. So just briefly, most drinks are in their ideal range for about five minutes but it takes most people 15 or 20 minutes to finish them. So I tweaked the way that drinks are made and served to make them last 15, 20, 25 minutes. The reason I hope other people do it is because a lot of times they're very weird. It might mean serving an old fashioned in a tiny little rocks glass that's chilled with a tiny little ice cube, not the big heavy rocks glass, not the big ice cube. And if I try to push this out into the world, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of raised eyebrows. I kind of need somebody else to push for me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that's one technique. One ingredient that I would love to see people play more with uh, is a cricket tincture. So this was something, I'm, my bar isn't far from Wayne State University, a university here in Detroit, and they had hosted some conferences about the future of bugs as food and i was like well that's kind of cool but what about bugs as drinks and i bought some crickets at the mexican grocery store made a tincture out of it and i kept trying it in drinks and i couldn't figure out what it was going to work with because a lot of times i couldn't really pick up the flavor in the final drink at some point i realized it's not really a flavor addition it's a flavor subtraction so I wound up using this in a Singani Negroni where Singani has some lovely fruity, intense kind of intriguing notes, but it's also got some maybe harsher elements because it's typically unaged. Weirdly, the cricket tincture killed those off notes and just let the nice parts shine through. So it's kind of and like, a, like almost a, like a fixative in gin kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, it's like, like the salt kind of, 
highlights the nicer parts, suppresses the the worst parts of certain flavors. And, you know, and it was something that I was like, well, I don't want to become like the cricket guy. So I'm not going to keep putting this on menus and keep like utilizing this. So it was just kind of a one-off thing, but I would love to see bugs and cocktails as a more of a mainstay. Why don't you want to become the cricket guy? I mean that no 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 that that, that sounds that does sound about as awful as as build. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, another ingredient that I'm going to personally make a plug for here is you've got something called radiant bitters there, which is again another concept in this book that is completely fascinating that we didn't even have time to get into in this chat. So the radiant bitters would be my vote for that question. Uh, and then I guess wrapping things up here, um, maybe on the, the like perfumer side of things, um, what's a bizarre ingredient that you've worked with either in the cocktail program or just perhaps individually with the sfumato, um, that, like really you were like, wow, that is, that is just the next level of weird. And and what did that kind of taste or smell like? Yeah, there, there's an ingredient in the scent world. Uh, honestly, it's one I've read <laughs> C-H-O-Y-A space N-A-K-H in my head. I've been saying it Koya knock, but someone's welcome to correct me on that. It is roasted seashells of which basically the vapor component is captured um, in a liquid form. And it smells intense and weird and off-putting and briny and a little bit like you're kind of walking along the ocean where you're happy to be there. But even if you're like, I don't know if I would like this smell if I wasn't at the ocean. Well, now you can smell it not at the ocean and verify that, yeah, it's a little maybe less than ideal when you're not like sand between your toes and all that kind of stuff. And it's one of these things where, you know, three drops is going to overwhelm a blend, but like one drop or half a drop just spins things in an interesting and weird way where you're like, this was pretty forgettable, but now I need to pay attention to it because it's got that little hook in it now. Yeah. Little, little, and that uh, was something you know. I've never really seen this referenced, honestly, anywhere. It was just one of my more esoteric suppliers had it on their website, and I was like, "Well, click. sure, I'll buy a bottle of that. Why not?" Uh, is that word? Is that like Gaelic or something? I don't know if I even dare speculate yeah. on its origins. Okay. Well, you'd spelled it out for me, so I'll go back. I'll write it down. I'll try and figure this out. That's, that is fascinating. A little nitrogenous, uh, you know, a lot of the, some of the, some yeah. of this reminds me of, of our friends over at Tamworth distilling in, um, in New Hampshire that are doing some funky stuff with including shellfish. So, um, but, uh, Kevin, man, I gotta, I gotta thank you for, uh, constantly, being willing to do the work to take things to the next level to record like a good little PhD, your results and, uh, and uh, make sure that they're presented to us at the, at the correct level at the manager level, as you said earlier. Um, I think that your book is tremendous and I, really hope that people will take this not as some sort of shill endorsement, but as a, like, I am legitimately excited 
that this book is now or will shortly be available to the world. So I, I want to thank you for the product that you've created. Uh, encourage anybody who's passing through Detroit to visit you for the products that you create over and over again on a nightly basis um, for guests to enjoy and smell and taste. And thank you finally for being my guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Well, I love your podcast. Most thoughtful interview questions out there. So keep doing what you're doing and uh, happy to come back anytime. Thanks, brother. Cheers to you. All right. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you can do to help the show. One would be to rate and review this program anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it will be for other like-minded flavor nerds to enjoy the content that I produce. You can also follow the Modern Bar Cart YouTube channel where I post video clips from the podcast and beyond, and you can join our growing Discord community which is where our listeners submit questions for upcoming guests and chat about all kinds of fun spirits and cocktail shenanigans. It's also where I share fun perks and discounts that are too exclusive to blast out on the airwaves. To join our community Discord server or get in touch with me for any other reason, all you need to do is drop me a line by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and boozy adventures are just beginning. So remember, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, cocktail engineering and aroma insights courtesy of Dr. Kevin Peterson, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Direct Fire Studios production, copyright 2024.